Hi, this is singer-songwriter Elizabeth Edwards. Welcome to Giving Voice to Recovery, a place we share ideas and experience for the purpose of inspiring you on your recovery journey. I am so glad you've joined me for this series of conversations with my dear friend, Christina Wanzelak. You may know Christina from her book, The Lost Years, her work on TLC's groundbreaking show, Addicted, or her television docuseries, Codependent, which premiered on Lifetime and A&E. Christina is credited with helping thousands of addicts and their families through her work as an international interventionist and now joins me in a series of conversations about life, recovery, and coffee. Welcome to Coffee with Christina button. So hey there, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Good to be here. Yay. Took a little self-care vacation. Nice. Yeah, just back from vacation. It's not it's so nice to get away, but always it's hard to come back or you know, you just literally hit the ground running and yeah, re-entry is rough. <laughs> it really is. So <laughs> But that's all right. So my head's spinning a little bit this morning, but, you know, getting the hang of it. There you go. Just breathe your way into it. So today's yeah. coffee cup. Well, I like that one. You rock. Yeah. And you I rock. Really, I don't, I don't have, I, well, I don't have well, That's half right the problem there. right there, Christina. <laughs> you don't have your coffee. That's why you're having a rough re-entry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll have to take care of that after this. But oh, anyway. I'm telling you, sometimes when I'm like fumbling around, I know that it's just my my lack of uh, connection with my my caffeinated state mm-hmm. there. But anyway, I was hoping today um, it is Valentine's Day on the day that we're recording this. It will go out after that. But um, what that prompted me to bring up, and just some of the things that I've been, you know, I've been around some families that are really struggling with um, helping their loved one get into some recovery. Um, And I really was in touch with the concept of self-love and self-esteem and the role that it plays in what happens during the um, active addiction and then what happens in recovery and what's necessary. There's a certain amount of self-love to actually grab onto recovery. And that's been my experience. I wanted to get your take on that whole concept of self-love um, in recovery and then enough self-love in our active addiction to actually receive help, mm. receive help and, and move from those self-destructive behaviors into a constructive, basically a reconstruction of our, mm-hmm. of our lives. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? That's kind of my view of it, but what? Yeah, I don't know. But I'm curious your thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll go first. I had a little more time to think about it than you did, so that's that's only fair. Well, I actually think that recovery becomes really possible when we put together the pain of a bottom and enough hope and self-esteem to reach out for that recovery. That's the motivation that comes together in that moment of clarity, I think, on some level, along with some other things like, I can't do this, I'm powerless over this, and I need help in overcoming it. That, that's the other thing that's going on there. I think those two pieces have to come together. And I think they feel very at odds with each other. And in, in, in reality, it's what's, I believe, what's needed to shift. Um, 
I think a lot of families that have the line, you know, there's like a thread of addicted people, um, active addiction running in families. We see that. I'm sure you see that. I've seen it my own family and then many, many, almost every family I know of. Um, I know there's the exceptions, but self-love can be, um, I think, a concept that doesn't fully get actualized in people because they're taking on and and they're on a subconscious level, maybe taking on the shame, inherited shame over time. And what I mean by that is the not good enough voice. And I think that's one of the things that's really common with people um, that I hear over and over again is people's unresolved um, perfectionism, beating my, uh, you know, I do this to myself, beating myself up, you know, not able to give ourselves grace, never good enough, uh, taking on the pain and, and internalizing the pain of other people instead of recognizing ourselves as individuals that can love other people, but we don't have to process all their emotions and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's these really blurred lines in these emotional spaces within a person that that suffers from addiction. That's been my experience. And I really saw that working with a family um, just as a friend um, over the weekend. And it really brought that home to me. And I thought, how do we get from that self-destruction, it's all my fault. I'm not good enough. I'm not worth it. I, who cares anyway? I don't care that angry self-destructive thing that goes on. How do we start to detangle that family that's caught up in that web of shame and blame and self-destructive behaviors? If it's the active addict or the active codependent, that's, that's what I see a lot of. And my take on the self-love piece is it's like rebuilding the foundation on a house, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of, a lot of self-awareness and a lot of other people modeling um, self-love and grace and giving ourselves grace. I'm still working on it 35 years into this deal. I'm still working on that one, but I think it is, it's like remodeling the starting at the foundation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. knowing that God doesn't make junk. Right. Yeah. Right. I haven't heard that in a long time. Um, okay. Well, so that was a lot. I so, <laughs> You asked for it, girl. <laughs> um, interesting when you talked about hitting bottom and kind of that intersection of esteem and despair. Um, you know, I, I guess I, because I, I talked about that a lot myself. However, this is how I think I felt about it, right? Like when I hit bottom, it was really that moment when I realized that no one was coming to save me, mm-hmm. that there was no one left to blame and that I had so clearly and painfully done this to myself, you know, and it was just a collapse of that whole internal construct that you and I have spoken about before, but And it was only then in that moment when I realized no one was coming that I could reach outside myself for help, which actually was the birthplace of my Mm self-esteem. So at that bottom, I I don't know if it was an intersection of esteem and despair. I think it was an intersection 
of complete annihilation internally coupled with the despair of addiction. So I don't know. I guess my point is if I had any love for myself at that time, I don't think I had any love for myself at that time. And I think the birthplace of it was in that moment when I reached out for help. But what I do know in regards to love is although I hated myself through and through, there wasn't one part that I liked about myself or I, I mean, I had just gutted myself through and through, but what I do know is that somebody showed me enough love along the way to make that call as opposed to, I don't know, throwing myself off the bridge, you know, literally and figuratively, um, you know, that someone along the way in my life showed me enough love to reach out at that moment, then succumb wholly to addiction. And I know for myself in my life, of course, that was my mom and, and other people along the way, you know, coaches and teachers and siblings, you know, but I don't know that I had that love somewhere. I think for myself, you know, the love I have for myself truly came with time, as you know, mm-hmm. just took time. I think staying sober one day at a time, you know, is, by the way, you know, like my first year sober was the greatest achievement of my life and still probably is today, ultimately, right? Because everything else. Exactly. Um, So I think getting that year. So, I mean, you know, just just one, you know, it's like I gave my love for myself away one incident at a time and I only got it back one incident Mm -hmm. at a time. Right. Like literally you build self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. Mm -hmm. Um, I know for myself that I also realized this, I think so. So, okay. I don't know how to articulate this, but you know, the longer I've been sober. mm, Okay. I don't really know how to articulate this yet. So I'm just gonna fumble through it, but (laughs) I love your fumbles. Go, girl. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, the longer I'm sober, the longer I realize that in the beginning of my recovery, I was so busy demonizing my addiction, right? Like you demonize drug addiction and the disease. and, And I just realized somewhere along the way, later in my recovery, by the way, like after the first five years, which I I think the first five years of recovery are really kind of, I think people are still new, frankly. Mm I told you that. I remember when, when Stephanie Brown told me that. And I thought my first thought was like, fuck you. I'm three years sober. I can't <laughs> together. Lady, what are you talking about? Five years? Like, I just remember, you know, because she's been sober, like, I don't know, 45 years or something. And I think there's research that supports that. Well. That was her point. She's like, it's not a personal attack. It's just research, right? And one yeah. day you'll see that. And God, if she wasn't right. But anyway. <sighs> My point is that um, I was so busy demonizing addiction, right? It's like so rigid in the beginning, you know, that this is good and that is bad and addiction is bad and recovery is good. And, you know, it's just so polarizing and catastrophic. And I realized somewhere, yeah, after those five years that if I'm so busy hating a part of myself, a relatively large part of myself and a large part of my story, if I'm so busy hating it and demonizing it, I'm never going to love myself, right? If I'm busy hating a part of me, I'm never going to love all of me. 
Mm -hmm. I don't know if that that's where I start. I, it's like hard to articulate, but I just got busy kind of not making friends with my addiction, but yeah, maybe like kind of jumping in and learning about it, studying it. It's where my studies of addiction really began. You know, how did this happen to me instead of just demonizing disease? But, you know, how did it happen? How did I come by? And what's my family history? What do the genetics look like? Where does that play a part? Where does the psychology play? I just got busy instead of, you know, like closing my eyes and looking away from it, just knowing it, that there was this monster in the closet, I guess I just started to shine a light on it. And the more I understood my addiction, the more I made peace with my addiction, the, the more I used my addiction to benefit others and step out of that shadow of, of shame and stigma that we talk about so much with faces and voices, right? Yeah. Um, you know, stepping out of that stigma, I really learned to love myself. Yeah. I learned to, I learned to be grateful for my, my, the gifts of my addiction. I'm kind of rambling now, but, um, you know, to, to be grateful for the gifts of my addiction. I, I, I received a lot of gifts through that, my addiction. You've I said, don't know. Yeah, no, you've said some wonderful things. I, I just wanted to hear, I wanted to help you get that all out. Yeah. That's awesome. Now you said a lot of things. Uh, the first thing that I, I, I really heard and really could just resonate with me is compassion. Why compassion to me is the appropriate response to a person in active addiction. And at first, yeah, it's almost like you have to receive it from somewhere else to ever be able to get to the place where you can actually have self-compassion that takes time, but receiving compassion from others. And I think that's why going to places where people have been there for a while and started to rebuild, you start to realize that that, you know, addiction is not about good, bad people trying to get good. It's about sick people who are trying to get well. And there's a huge difference there. Mm -hmm. And as a society, we do stigmatize uh, all the behavioral health issues. Um, and it's understandable because it's a very misunderstood um, disease. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Where'd you go? There you go. Oh, there sorry, you go. Sorry. I don't know. I got a phone call. It was weird. I got a call. And, and oh, yeah. Sometimes that throws us off, but your halo is yeah. on, girl. Your, angel, know, your not, angelic halo almost, wanted to join this conversation about self love. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, the um, yeah, your sunlight came up and gave you your halo. But yeah, I think that self compassion comes after we learn to receive compassion just because we're a human being and we're suffering. And as a person in long term recovery, what you mentioned with faces and voices and why that the mission of destigmatizing the um, substance use disorder and all the disorders that are around that because there's some other behavioral disorders um, that are lined up with that. The reason that understanding education and, and really being a breaker of stigma, why that's so important is because of that piece, that compassion piece. A lot of people in the throes of, of active addiction, our ego, their, their ego is protecting them. And all you see is the anger and the blame and the shame and stuff. But underneath that from you've been there, I've been there. There's a person that's literally dying in front of you. Okay. And that's why I think people like you and I, and people who understand that and have recovered from it, that's why we're the best people to be on the front line with them to say, 
Yeah, I get you. And underneath there is a very scared, um, shame-based person that's literally drowning, drowning in shame. And so compassion is that lifeline, compassion and understanding. And that takes, that takes um, somebody who's been there. And a lot of times there are some fabulous therapists. There are some fabulous people, professional people who totally understand this as well. And usually mm-hmm. people drawn to that work have had some kind of life experience. And those are usually some of the best people to, to get in touch with, like you mentioned, Stephanie, um, who's lovely, by the way, she, um, the no, no. people who understand that level of compassion, because there's none for that person, the, the level of shame and self and self-loathing and hatred, self-hatred is just amazing. What's going on inside that person, no matter what you're seeing on the outside. Um, and so mm-hmm. that's the first big piece. The second piece that, um, well, I forgot about it already. So it must, if it's important, it'll come back, but that, that really struck home. Um, stigma. That was the other thing. Yeah. Stigmatizing. And I think that's one of the main reasons I started this, conversation with you and others is to really get our voices out there because this is an important message to people who are still in there and stuck in those systems where there's not an education. There's a lot of blame. There's a lot of um, misunderstanding of what you're actually dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination. And I know you don't believe this either is that I'm not talking about breaking boundaries or laws or not taking responsibility for our actions. That, oh, that was the piece. Acting our way back into right thinking, acting our way into self-esteem through self-esteemable behavior. That is key because you can't think your way into self-forgiveness. You can't think your way into forgiveness from others. You actually have to do the work. You have to take the actions. And it's a huge process and it's a process Mm -hmm. that absolutely pays off. And you mentioned that lastly, um, the, when you get to that place, one of my, uh, my actual mission statement for this project is transforming pain into purpose. And I really believe that when you get on the other side of the, the early years of all that self-loathing and and self-destructive behavior is we get into a place where we can actually take our experiences and really help other people. And that's when you see the gifts, you see all the gifts. That's one of the big ones. It's not the only gift, but that's a huge gift in sobriety. I wouldn't trade my situation for anything at this point. Mm -hmm. And I felt very cursed in the very early days. So that's kind of my take. So many good things you've shared. I think families suffer, you know, as, as you had mentioned too, just the family piece also, you know, suffer with, you know, terrible shame and anger, shame, low, anger, yeah, all that. Low, like low self-esteem or, or low love, right? Like mm-hmm. just a low vibration of love for themselves and their families. And I think people get, but people get so beat up in the action family. And then, so there's just this huge amount of anger, shame, and blame going on. And I think everybody gets really beat down by it. That's right. That, I mean, and as I said before, that's how you end up with low self-esteem, you know, families and not just, 
you know, low self-esteem isn't, or, you know, isn't just for the addict, but for the family too. Absolutely. And I think that's how a lot of it gets passed on people. You know, there is a genetic component, but there's also definitely a socialization component. And if you grow up in a family where there's untreated addiction, but it doesn't look like active chemical dependency addiction, it might be untreated codependencies or untreated low self-worth because they were abused from a a generational you know, addiction. And and that's actually what happened in my family was, you know, the skipping of generations. There's, there's great authors who write on that subject too. I'm getting ready to Mm -hmm. hopefully have an interview with one of them in in the near future, because that's such an interesting piece. The, The opportunity for the family, I really think, and I have heard you talk about this. I'd like to get your take on it. I think there's a real opportunity for the family to take a look at themselves individual as individuals and say, how am I showing up in this? How am I taking care of myself in this? How is this affecting me? And what can I do to, what can I do to contribute to the wellness of the whole family? How do you address that when you're working with a family, Christine? I know you work with a lot of, not just the person, the individual, you're, you often are working with an entire family. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I would consider myself a family interventionist, you know, mm-hmm. really a family advocate, mm-hmm. not just, you know, an interventionist for addicts, but mm-hmm. for family systems. And I, I work with families, exactly what you just said, really. I think the three most important questions that a family can ask themselves, right? And this is where so much of my work is. It's shifting the power from the power in a family system, addicted family system rests on the sickest member, right? Mm -hmm. So the addict is driving the family, the health of the family, Mm -hmm. the stability of the family, right? The addiction is driving that Mm -hmm. the family isn't. So it's, I think part of my work that's most difficult is helping families take the light right off the addict and Mm -hmm. shine it on themselves and ask families. I think the three most important questions are, you know, what is my part in this? Mm -hmm. What is my part? Not my fault, but family's work is a puzzle and every one is a piece. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in an addicted codependent family, they're so busy figuring out the addicts piece. They, bypass their own. So to turn that light around, ask themselves these three questions. What is my part in this? How has my life been affected by the disease of addiction and codependency and trauma? Just like you said, how has my life been affected? Mm-hmm. Not by my, not by the individual, but by the disease. How's my life been affected? Yeah. And what can I change in myself? to benefit my own life and the life of my family. Three incredibly valuable questions, right? And it takes the light off the addict because, right, addicts might get better. They might not. That's the truth of it. You might let go of the one that you love most and they might not ever return. And so, right, if your life and your happiness, your well-being is contingent on the life of the addicted individual, it it will result in many loss and unhappy years. So I, that's, I do exactly that, Elizabeth, ask yourself those three questions, right? What is your piece in your family system? 
How has your life been affected by the disease of addiction, codependency, generational illness? And what can you change in yourself to benefit your own life and the life of your family? Yeah, and take care of yourself. And that's take right. Care of yourself. Yeah. And Does also, that make sense? Like, oh, it makes, I'm, I know like 10 people I'm going to send this video to <laughs> right off the top of my head, like today. Um, absolutely. I think getting the focus not to be self-centered, not in a self-centered way, but in a personal responsibility way. I am responsible for my inner world. I'm also responsible for my actions, which affect my outer world. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot control another person, but I can control myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't cause this in this particular individual, but I can be part of the solution by working on myself. Mm -hmm. And I can also, um, I can't control, I can't, I didn't, I can't cure it, but I can show up for the healing. Mm -hmm. I can show up for the healing for myself and that can't not help your mm -hmm. loved one. Right. And it all feels so counterintuitive when you're it's in it. It's so counterintuitive. It is. That's so why, and that's why I always say get support. And if, um, if that's in the form of a family interventionist or a therapist or a, a treatment center or um, some other really good support, 12-step programs, obviously, mm -hmm. um, there's, there's always, I don't know how people, I always say, if your loved one had cancer, would you try to cure it at home? Right. And I know way more people who've died from addiction. I mean, a lot of people die from cancer too, but there's a lot of people who die from addiction. So take right. care of, get the, get the help you need because it's a really big, it's a really big shift, but it, it's a shift that is miraculous when, when you make it and it's amazing and it happens every day. Recovery does work. Recovery does happen. It also might not happen the way you want it to, when you want it to, and, and with who you want it to, but it does work for many, many people. That's right. It does work. You are just angelic today, girl. I love you dearly. And I hope you have a terrific day. Thank you as always, Christine. I love our conversations and uh, yeah, girl, you need, you need to uh, go find some more caffeine. <laughs> our little, uh, my, my, my um, I always appreciate your time. I'm going to go get my caffeine and I will see you next week. Absolutely. Uh, great to have you. Take care. Bye. Bye. -bye.